This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today I'm joined by Dr. Gary Stewart. Dr. Stewart is Assistant Professor of History at Colorado Christian University, and he's authored a brand new book released in 2021 with Oxford University Press titled Justifying Revolution, the American Clergy's Argument for Political Resistance, 1750 to 1776. Dr. Stewart, congratulations on the new book, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Zach. I appreciate it. Well, I'm, I'm glad to meet you, and I'm, I'm glad to have gotten a chance to read your book, which I'm sure our listeners will be excited to hear about. Uh, but before we discuss the book, uh, can you share with us a little more about yourself, your academic background, that, that sort of thing? Uh, yes. I, I was an a undergraduate history major at South Dakota State. And after that, um, spent a number of years pursuing biblical and theological um, studies and pastoral training. I received an MDiv from the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and was a pastor for almost seven years in St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada. Uh, While I was there, I um, did a degree, a master's degree um, in historical theology from Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. They had a London extension program. So I um, was able to study in London while living in Newfoundland. And then I came back to the States and um, received a PhD in church history and historical theology from the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville. Um, So for the past uh, six years, I've been teaching history at Colorado Christian University in uh, Lakewood, Colorado, a Denver suburb. And my focus um, at the university is on American history. So that's my main area of teaching um, at the university. Very good. That's all really interesting. And, and you know, as we, as we look at uh, some of the books you, you've published recently, it looks like you've, you've, you've published several in a pretty short amount of time. And this is, this is obviously the latest of those. Uh, can you tell us something of the genesis of this new book, uh, Justif- Justifying Revolution, um, and why did you feel like this book needed to be written? Yeah. Um, before I got interested in church history and historical theology, I was very much interested in American politics and American political history. And I think that church historians often focus quite narrowly on church-related things and don't sometimes don't understand the surrounding political and cultural context very well. And on the flip side, I think a lot of secular historians often don't understand uh, church history or theological history and distinctions 
very well also. So I've been drawn to areas of study where there's a kind of bridging of the gap uh, between uh, general, broad American history, political and cultural history, and then also church history and um, bringing these fields together with, with my interest in social, political thought as well. So one of my previous books was uh, written on a 19th century figure in church history, uh, J.W. Alexander of Princeton Seminary, and his interaction with American culture and social reform schemes in the antebellum period. Um, I, I think more work needs to be done on um, understanding the role of religion in the shaping and development of America's cultural and political life. And I've, I've sought to do areas of research that, that bring all of my uh, interests together terms of uh, American history, church history, and uh, social political thought as well. Uh, specifically, this book, um, Justifying Revolution, was born out of what I believe to be a misunderstanding in the academy of the American clergy's support of the American Revolution. It's been quite common for evangelical church historians to view the American clergy as um, as corrupted by Enlightenment secularism or or Lockean political views or something foreign and alien to their tradition, and 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 that's often viewed as the reason for why they supported political resistance to the British. They're obviously walking away from the Bible to support political resistance. Uh, so as the argument goes, uh, they reported uh, they supported the revolution. And that signals a rejection of their biblical theological heritage for some sort of mega shift in their thinking uh, for, for secular or enlightenment or Lockean notions of liberty and freedom. And, and that's been the dominant view for some time, seeing the, the patriot clergy as somehow uh, accommodated or somehow um, making fundamental alterations walking away from their biblical theological heritage. Um, and that's been a, a view that, um, that, that I um, wanted to question and wanted to, uh, wanted to explore. Uh, personally, I felt the need for myself to wrestle with the question of the morality and legitimacy of the American Revolution. As, a, as an American, you know, I'm studying in England and I'm uh, befriending lots of, um, lots of folks from across the pond. And uh, receiving some uh, some healthy questions and, and challenges, you know, what was was America born on uh, on the back of a sinful and ungodly rebellion? Um, you know, how how did the spiritual and theological leaders of the nation uh, think through these things? And so it was it was a combination of a kind of dissatisfaction with how the American clergy were treated uh, by the academy, and also just personally some questions. I'm a very patriotic American and uh, wanted to really explore the morality and ethics and legitimacy of, of the American Revolution itself. So all of these things uh, kind of fed into the, the birth of this book. You know, you say right off the bat in the introduction uh, that the American clergy who had supported the revolution, they've been misunderstood. You mentioned that here and how, and how you've conceived of your task in this book. I'm wondering if you can walk us through uh, some of these specific histories of American clergy and where these accounts 
seem to err? What, what, what methodological approaches are, are they taking that are leading to these, these different notions that, that American clergy sort of had, you know, either synthesized Christian and secular ideas or, or made particular philosophical shifts? Um, where, where are these histories sort of messing up that your book seeks to correct? Yeah, I'm, I'm very humbly entering into uh, a field that has some very impressive scholars and very impressive scholarship that's been done, but I am pushing against specifically some, some arguments made um, by Mark Knoll. Uh, Mark Knoll is a widely respected evangelical uh, historian and um, in his book, uh, his 2005 book, America's God, he, he makes this argument quite, quite strongly. The Patriot clergy set aside the Bible to, in their support of political resistance. He argues they were influenced by something he terms Christian republicanism to do so. And he's held this view and promoted this, this view for a long time. In uh, Way back in 1983, uh, Mark Knoll was joined um, uh, by George Marsden and Nathan Hatch in their book, In Search of Christian America where they were heavily critical of the Patriot clergy for their apparent um, uh, accommodations uh, uh, of Scripture to Enlightenment exegesis. Um, uh, and, and that has sort of set a, a, a sort of standard interpretive view within, within the academy. Um, and, and many other historians have, have, have sought to, um, to take that interpretation and, and have, have applied that to understanding of American religious history in general, viewing the revolutionary era as a, as a period of major shifts in American religious thought. So others like Greg Fraser and John Wilsey and some others have, have, um, have sort of adopted the Noel uh, perspective. I think that this perspective is, it, it makes two fundamental errors. Uh, Noel, Marsden, Hatch, and, and others have pretty much uncritically adopted Bernard Balin's neo-Whig perspective on revolution. Uh, Balin was um, a very important um, historian who really founded a whole school of historical uh, historians, interpreters of American history. But Balin argued that the supporters of the revolution were motivated by uh, 18th century political radicals. Um, Commonwealth men, um, and 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 Noel and others have directly applied Balin's perspective onto the American clergy, and I think I think it's a mistake to do that. Um, whatever merits Balin's argument might have for the broader population, um, setting those aside, I think it's improper to simply um, apply those onto the American clergy. I think also the the second error that's made is I think that historians like Noel have not taken the time to understand the clergy's own theological tradition on the question of political resistance. Um, Protestants from the early 16th century onward had wrestled with the question of of uh, political submission. What it, what is the uh, limits or extent of obligation required um, in in Scripture? Um, so through, throughout the reign, uh, through the reign of Mary the First in the 1500s, 
period of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, the 1570s, on into the, the um, English Civil War, the Restoration Period, on to the Glorious Revolution. Protestant theologians and pastors have wrestled with the question of political resistance, the extent and bounds of political submission for a long period of time. And uh, Noel and others in their writings completely ignore this tradition, the, the reformed political resistance tradition, you could call it. Um, and, and I feel like if one's going to understand the patriot clergy properly, one has to understand their own theological background, their own uh, the, the previous uh, discussions surrounding the ethics of political resistance. Um, it's, it's inappropriate simply just to um, uh, apply Balin's neo-Whig perspective on the clergy. It's better to understand the clergy's own theological heritage and their, their own tradition. What was the state of the question of, on political resistance uh, leading up to the American Revolution? Um, and, and that's what I've sought to do, to recover that historical uh, context, to, to properly put the cl- patriot clergy's arguments within their proper historical context and, and, their, and thereby understand their arguments sort of on their own terms and from within their own perspective. Yeah, I think that's really good. And, you know, you engage a wide range of, of scholarship and histories of, of political resistance and and within that, 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 that growing body of literature about Christianity's role in these things in America's founding. Um, and I, I think your book is, is, is a terrific contribution to that, that dialogue. And, you know, the, the conclusions that you draw uh, and, and that you've mentioned about sort of rejecting the idea of, of major shift in, in Protestant thought and the idea of, of the revolution uh, as purely secular, these and a few few other implications you, you get into um, in your conclusion, they're really brought out nicely through how you framed you know, just a, a really nice chronological structure of the book. Um, and so, so as, as we begin look, looking at the book here, um, you've started around 1750. Who are the who are the players that that you're dealing with here in 1750 as we start thinking about the justification of political resistance? Hmm. Yeah, um, 1750 is um, is important year. It's it's as I started the narrative. It's important to again assess the state of the question of political resistance before the period of the troubles in 1760s, 70s with England. So I, I started with uh, one individual in particular, Jonathan Mayhew. Um, Mayhew was a Congregationalist minister in Massachusetts, and he he um, published a, a very important uh, sermon on political resistance, provoked by the the Jacobite supporters of the the deposed uh, Stuart line of James the Second. So James the Second had been Posed in the Glorious Revolution, 1688, um, but the supporters of James and his line didn't didn't go away. Uh, there were a number of uh, Stuart uprisings of the, the heirs of James uh, claiming their legitimacy to the throne. It was it was in 1745 that Bonnie Prince Charlie uh, r- rose up uh, and, and tried to um, assert his legitimacy as the lawful and rightful king of England. 
He was in the line of James, the deposed king. So the supporters of the Stuarts um, you know, continued to, to argue that the, the Glorious Revolution was illegitimate, that political resistance was illegitimate because of their view of the divine right of kings. So the current monarch, the Hanoverian line, the, the George II, was therefore illegitimate. And, and from Mayhew, he is, he is confronting those supporters of the Stuarts who were arguing against the Glorious Revolution and um, therefore, they were arguing really against the legitimacy of the King of England. So um, in his day, Mayhew's day, there were British subjects that honored Charles I as a martyr and who uh, claimed to be loyal to the Stuart line. So, so Mayhew argues that loyalty to the present King of England demands that you believe in the legitimacy of political resistance, because that's what the Glorious Revolution was all about. So... So to be loyal to the king, you have to agree that political resistance is sometimes justifiable. That the, the current monarch even rests upon the doctrine of political resistance. So, so Mayhew makes a very important um, uh, argument. Um, he is lauded and praised by John Adams uh, as being a very influential. Adams says that Mayhew was read by everyone. And um, Mayhew was very important for promoting the notion of a morally justified expression of political resistance. But Mayhew didn't originate these views. He was very open about that. Mayhew um, was very open about that he basically got his views from an English bishop, uh, Bishop Benjamin Hoadley, who had made the, the case against the, the Jacobite supporters of the Stuarts in the early 1700s. Um, in fact, Mayhew sent a copy of his work to Bishop Hoadley saying, you're you're, you're owed a copy of it because I basically stole this from you. So this is so Mayhew's doing nothing new, nothing distinctly American, um, but is carrying forward a long line of arguments raised against Stuart absolutism, which we see in the 1600s and then also in the, the 1700s um, as well. So we have Mayhew providing justification of resistance to this this founding generation. Then you have another big signpost for political expression of resistance, um, and and that's what what comes along during the Stamp Act crisis in seventeen sixty five. What was the Stamp Act and? What about it led America to sort of reassert itself um, in terms of resistance? Yeah, the, the Stamp Act was one uh, one piece of British policy coming out of the um, the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, where England had exerted great expense to um, basically rid the North America of the French. And um, and the Stamp Act was passed for the express purpose of extracting revenue from the British colonists in North America. It, it inflamed and provoked great resistance in the British colonies, not so much over the issue of money, but because of the political principle that it seemed to violate um, the Stamp Act was seen as a violation of fundamental English rights and liberties. Um, 
it was it was a part of the English Constitution going back as far as the Magna Carta in twelve fifteen that taxes wouldn't be levied, revenues wouldn't be extracted without the people's representative consent. So the uh, many, not just in the colonies, but many in England as well, um, viewed the Stamp Act with great foreboding, uh, believing that the old specter of political absolutism was on the rise again um, as as the, the position taken by Parliament was was one that seemed to transgress traditional limits, traditional restraints and restrictions upon the government. So it, seen, it was seen as an unconstitutional violation of fundamental British laws, and and that raised the fear of, of of political absolutism being on the rise again. You know, the 1600s were were dominated by this fight against Stuart absolutism. And and now we have in the 1700s an absolutist position uh, taken by the Parliament again. Uh, in fact, the very the very day that the Stamp Act was finally repealed, the very day it was repealed, the British passed what was called the Declaratory Act in 1766, declaring that the King and the Parliament had a um, had a right to bind the colonies in all cases whatsoever. A statement of absolutism that uh, um, echoed what had been applied to the Irish in, uh, I think it was 1719, uh, which uh, subjugated and conquered people. It was a, it was a posture, a position of absolutism that was taken. So, so the stamp, you know, the issue of taxation, that's a surface issue. The the bigger issue was the colonists feared political absolutism was on the rise again, and the English Parliament had taken that up as its position against the colonies. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You know, the role of memory, the significance of it, it really can't be understated for how it played into attitudes and beliefs, the actions of historical actors, whatever time period we're looking at. I really appreciated this aspect in, in your chapter here and how you've connected this uh, mid-1760s resistance to the memory of Governor Andros, who's deposed in 1689. What can you tell us about him and how memory kind of played into those attitudes and beliefs? Yeah. Yeah, that, that was um, that was just a really neat discovery I, I made that um, this issue of political resistance was not new in the 1760s and 70s um, in the colonies the, the in the in the british colonies themselves there was in fact a revolution that took place in 1689 in 1689 um, the the tyrannical stuart imposed governor of the dominion of new england governor edmund andros was overthrown and deposed and in 1691, a book was published in Boston, most likely written by a clergyman, 
published anonymously. And the book was titled The Revolution in New England Justified. They were justifying, they called it a revolution. Uh, it's in New England. It's published in Boston. It's, uh, it gives moral justification for why they were morally justified in deposing Governor Andros. They listed his the, the, uh, the oppressive and absolutist ways that he had um, governed the, the uh, New England colonies. And uh, this same book, The Revolution in New England Justified, was reprinted in Boston in 1773. Um, and so the memory of clergy-led, morally justifiable political resistance was very much a New England tradition uh, that had not been forgotten. Um, you know, it, it wasn't, um, you know, that this was a revolution that was not um, taken on under the influence of, of John Locke. Uh, it's much too early for that. And, and that the memory of that lingered in many of the sermons in the 1760s, 1770s in New England. Edmund Andros uh, and his, his tyrannical rule and his uh, being deposed, uh, put him in jail and sent him back on a ship to England. That his memory was evoked time and time and time again as providing a kind of precedent, a uh, kind of a framework for understanding justified political resistance to oppressive absolutist governments <clears throat> you, you don't have to look outside of new england or even outside of you know the clergy's own traditions in new england uh, for precedent uh, and and it was just wonderful to discover that this you know this volume was reprinted in boston in 1773 as uh, as uh, things are heating up in massachusetts so we have the memory of the past sort of fueling resistance, but also there were there were some there were some apprehension, some fears about the future here on the eve of the revolution. Um, you talk about that some. Can you share a little bit about about what you get into? Kind of on the eve of the revolution, what are the fears on the horizon? Yeah. Uh, again, the the main fear was that the old enemy of absolutism was on the rise again. Political absolutism. Um, this had this had been what had led into a civil war against um, Charles I, whom they subsequently beheaded. It led to the Glorious Revolution. Um, so there's great fear that political absolutism was was on the rise again in England. But there was also great concern for religious absolutism um, in, in the form of um, of a, a rising. Um, Roman Catholicism. So there was great concern when the British Parliament passed in 1774 the Quebec Act. Uh, the, the Quebec Act uh, essentially expanded the bounds of, um, of where Roman Catholicism would be uh, accepted, extending the bounds in, on, down into the Ohio Territory, on into the American interior. And this was of great concern that a British parliament had essentially established Roman Catholicism in the American interior. This, this greatly concerned um, many of the Protestant um, uh, colonists. Again, at this time, Roman Catholicism was, was very much viewed as a, a system of oppression and religious absolutism. 
There's also great concern about plans to impose Episcopal bishops on the colonies. There were plans uh, afoot to perhaps impose uh, Episcopal bishops, and that, of course, made dissenters especially quite concerned about the loss of their religious liberties. So it was sort of a perfect storm of events. The, the common denominator was absolutism, be it political or religious. They, um, the colonists believed that the old specter of absolutism was on the rise again, and it, and it, it had to be met with godly uh, resistance. That was, that was um, part of the milieu of, of, of what was going on. I think uh, historians err when they seem to make it merely an issue of taxation issue of money or uh, an issue of um, some abstract political concept. It was the, the long battle against absolutism um, that, that, that Protestants saw as a kind of beast um, equating um, ecclesiastical absolutism, seeing it in league with political absolutism, and um, viewing this as something that the godly must resist. So those are some of the trying to recreate, you know, my reading of the sermons, trying to recreate the the um, concerns and fears and attitudes of the time, and, and um, the, these. This is the central idea that really stands out uh, to me. Well, Doctor Stewart, if if we look further into the seventies, um, ideas about resistance are now developing, momentum perhaps growing. What was the pushback like? Did clergy specifically did they suffer any during this time? And and then second, were they were they willing to amend or or advance particular arguments that they were making as a result of of any suffering that there might be? Yeah, I think individual clergy um, suffered variously, be be they Tory or Whig, uh, depending on if they were in sync with their communities, uh, local communities, or not. But the, the, main, um, the main issue of suffering that really gripped the, the colonists was um, the sufferings endured by Boston after the Boston Port Act uh, shut down Boston Harbor, um, eventually subjugating the whole urban population there to potential starvation. Um, that, was, that, that produced a great outcry. Uh, later on, King George III would close all the ports essentially declare colonies closed for trade um those so that that bit of suffering um along with uh, the reported atrocities enacted on the civilian population of massachusetts after the british defeat of lexington and concord there were affidavits taken testimonies of enraged soldiers on their flight back to boston committing um serious atrocities against the civilian population. And then finally, and very dramatically, the, um, the burning of three um, coastal cities with uh, incendiary shot. Uh, there, there are three cities in particular, Charleston, Massachusetts, just off of uh, Boston, just off of Bunker Hill, Falmouth, Maine, and Norfolk, Virginia, we're all burned to the ground in acts of um, retaliation, revenge, and spite as the British Navy fired incendiary shot into these civilian populations. The, the effect of all of these acts um, caused the clergy to begin making arguments for armed resistance on the basis of self-defense. 
you can see that in in their sermons um, in in their publications starting in the 17 I think 1774 1775 for sure and 1776 on the on the verge of declaring independence the the issue for the clergy the the immediate proximate reason for political resistance became um, b- became one of self-defense uh, as these um, urban populations have been burned and, and the civilian populations have been subjected to um, catastrophic uh, loss of uh, property and, and their homes and the ability to provide for themselves. Uh, so that became, uh, there is a shift that takes place as the as the aggressions of the British are ratcheting up, the arguments do shift uh, to, to be um, more and more arguments are raised in terms of self-defense. You know, I, I think this is a good example of how your book flows really well because you, you move from um, British attempts at, at coercing submission and then into a, a more detailed discussion of, of the arguments that British clergy uh, we're making with with regard to American resistance. So as we as we think about British clergy, their their perspective was there anything there in your research on on the British clergy um, that perhaps surprised you as as you're surveying yeah. uh, their opinions? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Again, to understand the American clergy properly in their context, that would be important to understand what what the British clergy doing. And I was surprised by how many British clergymen were against the parliamentary policies um, as it related to the American colonies and how many British clergymen supported American political resistance, supported even in writing. Um, the, the majority of the dissenting clergy um, seemed to have supported the, the, the American patriots in their resistance, clergymen like Caleb Evans and Thomas Bradbury. Uh, John Wesley did not, but he, his his views as a Tory were not representative of a large number of evangelical clergymen. George Whitfield, even though he died before um, before the American Revolution um, during the Stamp Act period in the 1760s, makes a number of comments where he uh, clearly indicates that that he's he would be in support of resistance to the absolutist uh, plots that were then afoot. Um, so I, I think the one thing that you know surprised me was I, I came more to understand the American Revolution as a kind of British civil war. There are a number of members in the British Parliament who supported the American resistance. Um, Edmund Burke, uh, Isaac Barre, um, William Pitt, and others. Um, I was also surprised to to discover a, a Church of England bishop uh, in his his support of American resistance to the Massachusetts Government Act, the, the, the act, one of the coercive acts that annulled the Massachusetts Charter. In 1774, he he published a short work, um, a speech, uh, a speech on the bill for altering the Charter of Massachusetts, and this was the most widely published political tract in America before Thomas Paine's Common Sense. 1776. So I, I was surprised to uh, to find just a, um, a number, a wide variety of, of British clergymen who were protesting the actions of the British Parliament and the British King uh, 
toward toward the colonies. And that helped me, you know, understand the American clergy in their context, that they're not doing anything that's unique or new or even distinctly American uh, in their arguments. They're, um, if, if mega shifts come in their thinking, they come after the revolution, um, uh, but, but are not reasons for, for their support of resistance leading up to it. It's really good. Well, in your final chapter, you come to a man, John Witherspoon, um, and he's one that offers some some really interesting insight, I think, especially uh, to the question of how to defend the, the 1776 independence. You know, Thomas Paine's Common Sense that you mentioned, you know, it, it was a work that seemed to shift colonial perspective on the matter. Um, but in terms of the political philosophy that was underlying it, how likely were the clergymen, Witherspoon especially, how likely were, were they to take on these types of arguments um, that Payne was making? Were, were they making different ones? Yeah. Um, yeah. John Witherspoon is such a fascinating person, uh, a clergyman, the president of the College of New Jersey, a Scott, Scottish uh, Presbyterian who emigrated to America from Scotland. Um, Witherspoon had actually um, apparently been involved in uh, resisting the, the, the Bonnie Prince Charlie uprising in uh, 1745. Um, he, he comes over to America and becomes an early supporter of, of independence, but, um, but not because he adopted Thomas Paine's perspective. In fact, when Thomas Paine wrote Common Sense, it was first published anonymously. And Witherspoon critiqued the book heavily when it came out because it was built, it, it seemed to be a fundamental denial of, of um, original sin. There was a denial of, um, um, of just an orthodox view of man. Um, and um, Paine was very much influenced by a more secular enlightenment elevation of, of, of mankind. Uh, Witherspoon, you know, didn't know immediately who the author was, but basically called him, you know, ignorant of human nature and an enemy of the Christian faith and was not at all interested in Paine's arguments. Um, he, he also didn't follow Paine's anti-monarchical republicanism either. Um, Witherspoon held up the British form of government as a good model, a mixed government, elements of monarchy, elements of aristocracy and democracy. We know that Paine would go on to support the French Revolution. Witherspoon was not at all um, on the same page as Thomas Paine. I think I think Paine becomes a, a key figure uh, for those who want to see the American Revolution as born of the same ideology as the French Revolution, um, but, but but certainly not for the clergyman, not for clergymen like Witherspoon. Um, Witherspoon was operating from a more uh, a, a British context of resistance, not one uh, of uh, you know, enlightenment, uh, uh, anti-monarchical Republican notions. Um, that, that doesn't fit for Witherspoon, and I don't think it fits for uh, the bulk of the American clergy. So Payne is a really interesting figure, but I think he's more of an anomaly than he is the norm, uh, especially when it comes to assessing the, the views of the clergy. Great. Well, Dr. Stewart, I think you make your case well um, to, to show really that it, it, would, it would be quite uncharacteristic of, of biblically-minded clergy to then kind of be uh, un, 
uncritical and, and embracing unbiblical views about resistance. And, and what you suggest, you know, as a better reading, um, as you say, you know, to, to present their views on political resistance as they understood them, I think that's a much better route and one that you articulate well. Um, well, that's probably a good place for us to wrap up here. But before we do that, um, Dr. Stewart, can you can you tell us uh, what you're writing on now? What what our listeners might expect from you in the future? I have one small project in the works on um, a 19th century American Presbyterian leader named Charles Hodge. Um, uh, a small work looking at uh, uh, some of his views on, on the church and and uh, sacraments. But um, after that, I'm not really sure. I'm, I'm, I continue to um, really enjoy, enjoy topics where there is this intersection of of uh, broader political and cultural history and, and, and church history. And, um, and we'll, we'll want to keep working along those lines in what, whatever form it takes. So we'll have to, we'll have to see. Great. Great. Well, that, that sounds like a good, a good plan. And we'll keep an eye out for what comes next from you. We'd love to have you back on the podcast at some point. Uh, but for now, thank you for writing this book. Uh, Justifying Revolution is published with Oxford University Press in 2021. And Dr. Stewart, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. I'll see you next time on New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you.